Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Well, you may not be aware of this, but this, this Wednesday, Pope John Paul II makes a return visit uh, to our shores. This will be his second visit, the first occurring in 1993. And as I read about his return to America on a papal visit and a tour with a number of opportunities to speak to the American public, the uh, news report said he comes both as a survivor and as a preacher. And if you know anything about John Paul, you know that he has survived much over his lifetime. Uh, he grew up in the uh, small town of Katowice, Poland. I've had the opportunity to be in Katowice. And uh, there is a young man. He marched through the time period in which the Nazis occupied his homeland. And uh, he went through the, uh, the time of uh, tremendous brutality and oppression and totalitarianism. And yet he survived that. But he survived that in order to inherit not a totalitarian regime, but one that was not only totalitarian, but atheistic. For the next 50 years, he had to survive communism. And as a Catholic, and especially as a Catholic priest, and so on and so forth, those were tremendous, tremendously difficult times. And yet, John Paul survived that. And then, of course, when he was uh, elevated to be the pontiff, uh, some of you remember a few years back, he survived an assassination attempt in which he took a bullet and yet uh, miraculously escaped with his life. And then not too long ago, went through a very difficult illness in which he had a tumor removed, and yet he survived that. So at age 75 now, he comes as a survivor for certain. But he comes to our shores, as he announced, as a preacher. And uh, he said that what he would like to take on as he visits our country is what he considers his most enduring foe what he calls the dark side of freedom. The individualism, the materialism, the sexual decadence and godless secularism that has penetrated and influenced Western society, and particularly America. You know, John Paul regards much of Western culture, and this is his statement, as the culture of death. Isn't that interesting? A guy who's been through Germany, who's been through Stalin, who's been through all kinds of uh, incredibly uh, uh, sensitive issues in his life, he would look at our culture and see it as the culture of death. And I thought that meant something to me, especially in light of the series that we've been going through called Carving Out a Godly Culture. It'll be interesting to see what Pope John Paul has to say as he visits our country and speaks to our people. But I want you to know there's something else that's interesting to me about this visit though I would say for him it's enormously alarming. And that is the, the growing disconnect between John Paul's popularity and John Paul's authority. There's a tremendous gap between those two. And he's alarmed as he looks at American Catholics because he finds that not only do American Catholics and the world have a tremendous fondness for him, in fact, they love him. He's a tremendously popular Pope. One man said that uh, he's probably the, one of the most popular, if not the most popular in this century. And yet, columnist Mariato makes this kind of intriguing statement. She writes, his popularity does not translate to impact. 
See, American Catholics disagree with the Pontiff on a number of key social, spiritual, and moral issues. And oftentimes, in that disconnect, they disregard his spiritual authority. In fact, George Gallup found in a recent poll when he asked Catholics this question, on difficult moral questions, which are you more likely to follow, the teachings of the Pope or yourself? And here's what Gallup found. 16% of Catholics said that on these difficult moral issues that confront me today, I follow the Pope. 79% said I follow myself. That can't help but be a tremendously perplexing thing to a man with all this rich heritage and experience, all of history and tradition that speaks to his spiritual authority over the world's largest church, that can't help but be tremendously disturbing. To be considered by that tradition to be an infallible leader, and yet his American followers who say that they love him consider his name in a broad extent morally meaningless. Practically irrelevant. You know, don't you think, and just imagine you were John Paul. And though he's an aged man, don't you think that at times he would like to take some of his critics and pin them up against the wall and just simply say to them, don't you know who I am? Don't you understand the history and the tradition behind our church? Do you believe it? And if you don't, why do you stay? Why? Why do you make my name, Pope, meaningless? Now, I say that by way of introduction because that's not just true of Catholics. That's true of Christians the world over in all kinds of churches. You know, that theme runs all the way through this book. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah and I want you to see just one of many such instances where you find that same disconnect, which is what we want to talk about this morning. Jeremiah 7, as you turn to Jeremiah, you're turning to one of the prophets. And this particular prophet was concerned about the disconnect in his day and God moves him to go. Now you can imagine this because this would have been highly courageous for him to do this, but he moves Jeremiah to go and stand outside that temple that Dan was talking to us about where all the pilgrims are coming up to worship Yahweh and they're coming into the, you know, the holy city and he asks Jeremiah to go stand outside the gates. It'd be like Jeremiah standing outside the doors in the parking lot as you drove up, you know? And Jeremiah is told to say this. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. That's what they're coming to do. Thus says the Lord host, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell here. Look down at verse 9. Will you steal? Murder, commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Do you see the disconnect there? 
Why do you do that? As if I can't somehow see and understand that. It's as if God is saying to Israel at this point in time, because by the way, the worship of God was extremely popular. People worshiped. They were always in the house of God. Saturday after Saturday, they were there. And they loved the pomp and the ceremony and the stories, just like you do. But practically speaking, God's name was meaningless morally. And that's what you see here. Practically irrelevant. And it's like God wanted to pin these people up against the wall and say, does my name, God, mean nothing to you? In our series, Carving Out a Godly Culture, we have found over the last few weeks that a godly culture begins with some basics. Some basic absolutes that make a culture that kind of fuels its energy on individualism a little uncomfortable. We call these basics the Ten Commandments. And the first three of these commandments have to do with our spiritual leader. You see, if you're going to carve out a godly culture, if you're going to have a culture, you've got to have cultural leadership. And if you're going to have a godly culture, well, you've got to have God. And so the first three commandments start with God. The first is, you'll have no other gods except me. If you're really going to have a godly culture, I've got to be the center post, the plumb line, the cornerstone. I've got to be that for you. Second commandment is that you shall have no images that, that tend to reduce me down to something I'm not. No matter how hard man tries to fashion something, he always reduces down God. He doesn't expand God. He reduces, he limits him. So he says, don't have any of these icons in front of me. Allow my word through your life to keep expanding and exploding your understanding of who I am. That's the second commandment. And then that brings us to the third commandment. And if you'll turn to Exodus 20, verse 7, you'll find that the third commandment has to do with the name of God. Here's what it says. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, if you're like me when you read that, because I tend, when I was growing up, to hear things more by tradition, by really studying the Word of God, but the first thing that comes to my mind is swearing, right? Don't swear. That's how we take it. It's like I felt the other night uh, when I was watching the, the hog game here in Little Rock, and I was all into it, but then the hogs miffed a punt, a punt. You know, they dropped the punt, the center centered it too soon, and the guy two rows behind me jumped up and went, Jesus Christ! And I wanted to turn around and just brand Exodus 20, verse 7 in his <laughs> forehead. You know? Because he was talking about my God. And that embarrassed me, and it hurt me to hear that. But as much as we tend to make this commandment mean that, it means much more than that. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, the broader aspect of this commandment. You see, I believe that what the third commandment is actually saying to us is this. The person of God, which is most often communicated to us by the name of God, should have a powerful, moving, influential impact in the everyday of our lives. Otherwise, he means nothing. Did you hear that? And if he means nothing, but you take him with you, and yet he never has any impact in your life, there's trouble ahead. That's what the second part of the verse says. 
You know, if we think about it for a moment, we can all recall out of the myriad of names we hear, and most of them don't mean anything to us, but of the myriad of names we hear, there are a few names in your past and in mine that have an impact like that on us. Um, there's a name that even to this day still gives me goosebumps. Bobby Meeks. Now, he means nothing to you, but Bobby Meeks during my sophomore year in high school terrorized me, bullied me, beat me up, stuffed me in the lockers, did all kinds of things. And I remember walking down the hallway and somebody would say way up ahead, hey, Bobby, what you doing today? And I would cringe and freeze and then I'd want to run. In fact, he still gives me chills. Just mentioning his name, Bobby Meeks. You may have people like that in your past. You know, there, there are public names that mean something to us. I, I can give you all sorts of public names and then get all kinds of different responses out of it. For instance, if I said Cal Ripken, see, some of you immediately smile. If I say O.J. Simpson, you're not sure what to do, <laughs> see? But that name means a lot to you now, doesn't it? If I were to say Mother Teresa, that means something to you. If I were to say Madonna, that means something too. If I were to say Rush Limbaugh or Forrest Gump, or Billy Graham. You know, somehow you say that and you feel a sense of inspiration. What if I said Mark Furman? See, there's a guy who, in all honesty, probably would give everything he owns to erase his name. And rightfully so. Because his name is mud. His name is meaningless, except in the sourest of senses. See, that's what I'm talking about. Names, they have gut impacts on us. Some good, some bad, some fun, some sad. But names mean something to us, some particular names. But what about the name of God? What impact does that have on you? What kind of emotion does that strike in you or does it strike anything in you? When you think about God in the day-to-day, -day, does He strike you as warm but empty? Does he strike you as cold and distant? I mean, you've been around church all your life, but God is still a name that's out there. It's kind of distant and cold. Does his name become clear and energizing to you? Is it full of rich imageries that, that, that really energize your spirit when you think about God in the day-to-day? -day? Is he threatening? Is he inspiring? Is he authoritative? What is he? What is his name? do for your life. Actually, most of us have probably thought very little about God's name as it's presented in the Old Testament. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we're more comfortable because the two primary names we're confronted with all the way through the scriptures of the New Testament is Father, and that's got all kinds of rich imagery, doesn't it? Jesus, we like that name. We sung about that name. We, we, we can think about Jesus Christ. But what about the names of God in the Old Testament, in particular, His personal name. Did you know God had a personal name? I'm not talking about the generalized names like God and Lord that we read. I'm talking about God's personal name like I go by the name of Robert or you go by Debbie or John or Susan. Did you know God had a name like that? I want you to turn back to Exodus chapter 3. Dan introduced us to this, but I want 
for us to take a minute because most evangelical Christians who are so rooted in the New Testament are unaware of this in the Old Testament. But God has a personal name. Now, when you turn to Exodus 3, you're confronting with the events of Moses. He's in Midian. God is trying to tell him to move into Egypt and confront Pharaoh and release the children of Israel. And, and he's scared. And here's where the dialogue now picks up. Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, that's the general name, by the way, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, Well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. I want to make three observations as you look at that verse. Look especially at verse 14. The first observation is this. Verse 14 does not give you God's name. What it really does is give you what God's personal name means. And that's an important fact here to start off with. So look at it. I am who I am or I am. What, what has occurred here is that the translators feel it's more important to give you what God's name means than actually give you God's personal name. My youngest son's name is Mason. And uh, in the baby books, <laughs> it means strong one. But if you ask my son what his name is, he's not going to say strong one. He's going to say Mason. When Moses says to God, what's your real name? The translators give us the meaning of that name, but they don't give us the name. If you want to write this next to the text, when Moses said, what is your name then? God said, Yahweh. That's my name. That's my personal name, like Robert or Bill. Yahweh. That's my name. And that name, if you'll notice in verse 15, is going to be God's name forever. It's going to be His personal name to all generations. Or it says literally in Hebrew, from the generations to the generations. That's His personal name. Now the reason the translators give the meaning of the name is just simply this. The meaning of the name is extremely important. Dan introduced you to one of the reasons that name is important. It's this. It's because when God says, what's my name? And He says basically, I am. That's my name. He is declaring to Moses His sovereign, listen, His sovereign self-existence. He is, whether you like it or not. He is. He is whether it meets your expectation or my expectation or not. You're not going to ever change Him in creating something different because that's unreality. He just is. And nothing can change that. And until we understand that He is, we'll never understand meaning in life because all meaning in life, philosophically as well as theologically, as well as sociologically, as well as psychologically, always starts to gain true meaning when we go to the God who created everything else and understand who He is. Those are deep thoughts. I introduced you to a small book, a classic called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And in this book, he makes a few, I think, penetrating statements about the self-existence of God that 
takes us beyond just reading that text and going, well, okay, he is. Here's what Tozer says. God has no origin, and it is precisely this concept of no origin which distinguishes that which is God from whatever is not God. The child by his question, where did God come from, is unwittingly acknowledging his creaturehood. Already the concept of cause and source and origin is firmly fixed in his mind. He knows that everything around him has come from something other than itself, and he simply extends that concept upward to God. The little philosopher is thinking in true creature idiom and, allowing for his lack of basic information, is reasoning correctly at this point. So now he must be told that God has no origin, and he will find this hard to grasp since it introduces a category with which he is wholly unfamiliar. So are we, still. The human mind, being created, has an understandable uneasiness about the uncreated. We do not find it comfortable to allow for the presence of one who is wholly outside of the circle of our familiar knowledge. We tend to be disquieted by the thought of one who does not account to us for his being, who is not responsible to us, who is self-existent, self-dependent, and self-sufficient. And so often we save face by thinking God down to our level, or at least down to where we can manage Him. Yet how He eludes us. For He is everywhere while He is nowhere. For where has to do with matter and space. And God is independent of both. He is unaffected by time or motion. He is wholly self-dependent and owes nothing to the worlds His hands have made. Man is a created being, a derived and contingent self who of himself possesses nothing but is dependent each moment for his existence upon the one who created him after his own likeness. The fact of God is necessary to the fact of man. And if you think God away, man has then thought away the very grounds of his own existence. Does God feel bigger now just reading those words? beyond us, a little bit frightening when he says, doesn't matter about you. I am. I am. There's another insight I want to give to this word, though. The word Yahweh also summarizes, I believe, the sufficiency of God for each one of us. See, remember, Moses felt that inadequacy. That's why he's kind of talking to God about, well, who, what am I going to say when I get there? He, he, he realized he was not able to pull off this incredible feat of leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. And so God here in Exodus 3 says to him, listen, I am, which meant I am your sufficiency. Don't worry about your inadequacy. So go. I am with you. That's what he says. And you know, the minute I read those words, I wanted to kind of fast forward the time machine to where Jesus was meeting with another little puny band of weak, inadequate, beaten down disciples on a hillside. And even though he stood before him in his resurrected body, the scripture says, as the gospel of Matthew closes, they were still doubting. And then he tells them, I want you to go into the whole world and make disciples. And he's looking into these weakened, beaten eyeballs when he says it. But then he adds, and by the way, he adds this, and it's not a coincidence when he says it this way. He says, and behold, 
I am with you even to the end of the age. I am. To each of us in whatever place we are, there are challenges in our life. And some of those challenges before us, we feel are beyond us. We don't know how we're going to get there. We don't know how we're going to do it. We don't know if we can do it. And so we realize we lack strength and energy and courage and power. And to each of these, God's name speaks. He says, I am strength. I am wisdom. I am courage. I am power. Whatever you need in life, I am. It summarizes His name, the self-sufficiency He provides for each one of us. A second observation I'd like to make about God's name is that for the Jew, it became so holy, this name, Yahweh, that it was not even to be spoken by a Jew. It's interesting. They consider it, and Orthodox Jews do today, it's so holy that you don't say it. You don't take His name in vain. You don't even say it, except for the high priest who once a year would say it on the Day of Atonement. It's the only time they would speak it. And that, by the way, is how we got the name Jehovah. I don't know if you realize this, but if you read Hebrew, and I read a little of it, you know, when you open up your Hebrew Bible, it's just all consonants. There are no vowels. You, you, you learn the vowels by memory. Just consonants. And then you put these little points underneath the word sometimes when you have trouble, and those are called vowel points. Well, in the Hebrew Bible, when a Jew would be reading along and he'd come to the name Yahweh, they couldn't speak the name Yahweh, so they would just put the vowel points for a more general word, Adonai. And so where they would see Yahweh, they would say Adonai. Okay? But if you look at the consonants of Yahweh and you add the vowels underneath it of Adonai, you pronounce that mixture of consonants and vowels, Jehovah. That's how we got the word Jehovah. It's not a biblical term, Jehovah. It's a mixture of Yahweh, the consonants, and Adonai, the vowels. That's how we get that word Jehovah. Then there's a final observation about Yahweh and the life of Jesus. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn over to John, John's Gospel. And as you do, you're turning to another interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders of that day. And uh, Jesus is making some pretty strong statements about Himself when you come to John uh, chapter 8. But none probably in His whole ministry more powerful than the statement He's about to make here in this chapter. Now notice how it starts in John 8. Look at verse 51. Jesus is saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Well, that, that will create a controversy, right? And so these Jews say to him, Okay, now we know he has a demon. He's got to be demon. Now, this guy's crazy. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Oh, thanks. <laughs> That's what I thought Jesus was probably saying inside. Thanks for setting the stage. Because you can let me respond to that. So here's what he says. Look at verse 56. He said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. And let me tell you, they could not have been more shocked. Because that's like you standing in my place and saying, I'm Robert. 
I am him. And that's why the next verse said they picked up stones to throw at him. We got to kill this guy. He's totally out of control. Now with these three observations, let's go back to Exodus 20 because now I think it will help us put that third commandment in perspective. Go back to Exodus 20. It says literally this, you shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now what I tried to present to you with those opening comments is just this. God has a name. It doesn't matter what you think about it. He already has a name. Yahweh. But what the third commandment is addressing is something that is the very heart of this message. So listen closely. This is the whole message right here. What God is saying basically in the third commandment is that He wants to make a name through your life. That's what the third commandment is all about. He, he wants to make a name for himself through you. He's got a name, but he wants to make a name. And what he doesn't want you to do is take his name, and at the end of your life, his name in your life stands for nothing. That's what the third commandment is all about. As I said earlier, this verse is not to be reduced to a prohibition against swearing. And I think you can, I can point that out in one word. Look at verse 7. It says, you shall not take. It doesn't say that you shall not speak. It's not even about talking. In fact, the Hebrew word is a very interesting one. It means to lift up and carry with you, to take with you somewhere. And I think what it's speaking about, if I could paraphrase it, the third commandment would really be said this way. You shall not carry the Lord with you and make Him in the day-to-day -day affairs of life nothing. You see, here's this transcendent God, the great I Am, the one who spun the universe into orbit, the one who's created the worlds, the one who created this little planet and put specks of life on it and looked at that life in total rebellion against Him and He said, I want you. And can you believe this? I want you. And I want to do something in you. I want to make your life eternal. I want it to count for kingdoms you know not of. I want to build a name, my name, in your life. So don't take it and make it mean nothing. That's what he's saying here. And it's serious stuff, I might add. God wants to make a name for Himself in each one of us. And if we don't allow Him to do that, even as we embrace His name, even as we come to worship on Sunday, it's like in the Pope's case, there's a disconnect. Oh, we love Him. Tremendously popular. Just don't influence me. Just leave me alone. Just let me make my decisions. Set my own course. Do my own thing. Set my own schedule. Elicit my own values. Set my own morality and change it when I want to. Just leave me alone. But I love you. I love you, Lord. You know what the New Test in the you know what the counterpart in the New Testament to Exodus 27 is? I believe it's Hebrews 10:26. I want you to turn there because the writer here of Hebrews is speaking. And he's speaking to a believing people just like the Ten Commandments are given to a believing people. And so in Exodus 10, and, and I want you to turn there because you need to look at this. You need to read it for yourself rather than hear me say it. 
Because reading is better than saying. Hebrews 10, 26. In some ways, this is commentary on the third commandment. But the writer says this, For if we, we believers, go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. But a certain terrifying expectation of judgment, just like on the last phrase of Exodus 20, verse 7. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then he says, verse 29, listen very closely. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Who is regarded as unclean. The word in Greek is koine, which means common. Who is, who is regarded as common, as ordinary, as matter of fact, as something to be treated as of no value. The blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and who has insulted the spirit of grace. Now let me tell you, there are a lot of people who say, I've done that, nothing's happened to me. Oh yes, there is stuff happening to you. Don't believe that. I know lives like that. And I've watched sometimes either the powerful crisis blow them away or the worst punishment. See, notice it says anyone who set aside the law of Moses died, they killed him. But then it says how much severer punishment than what? Than death. You know what's worse than a crisis? A slow, simmering disintegration. And Paul says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. God wants to do something through you. He wants to build for himself a good name. And you have the privilege of letting him do that. But if, he do, if you don't, then he says, that's serious stuff to me. Because you're not supposed to take my name in vain. I am. Remember? Let me just give you real quickly a few ways where we take the Lord's name in vain, I believe. I think we take the Lord's name in vain when we embrace God publicly and let other people know we're Christians. But then practically in the everyday of life, that means nothing. That really means nothing. It doesn't change anything. I think we take the Lord's name in vain when we embrace God personally, but we make our own decisions with no thought of what His Word says and we don't even really care. I think we take the Lord's name in vain when we embrace God religiously. We go to church. We go to a community group. We're part of a Bible study. But then in the everyday of life, we lie. We cheat. And we steal from people around us. We indulge in pornography and we think we're getting away with it. We pressure someone into sex. Another sacred person to God but we pressure them into sex outside of marriage. We get drunk. And we don't want God telling us what to do with our alcohol. So we get drunk when we want to. We don't care. When we ignore our God-given responsibilities as a wife, as a mother, who God has given us these gifts called children, but we don't have time for them because we've got to make a name for ourselves. Or as husband or as Father. We never have the courage to seek His will for us. We never have the courage to let God touch our schedule 
because that's the untouchable. We do what we want to do, when we want to do it, and on our terms. You see, all of those is saying, God, in me. Out there, your name means everything. But in me, your name means nothing. Nothing at all. Two questions I think that are worthy to ponder. And that's just this. As a Christian, how is God making a name for himself in my life? Well, that's a powerful question to me. And then a kind of a corollary question would be this. Where is the evidence of his influence in my everyday life? Can I see it? Is it growing? Is God's reputation growing in me? You see, my reputation and my name and his name are intimately connected in the eternal scheme of things. That's what the third commandment addresses. So we talk about taking God's name in vain and making it vain. How do we make God's name valuable? How do we do that? I want to mention three areas I think are important. I think we make God's name valuable when we allow him, the great I am, I am to impact the direction of our life. Remember last week when I asked you to hold up your hands and I said, hey, because we don't do that a lot, but I asked you to hold up your hands and say, listen, this week when you're thinking about what to give, you know, we talk about it once a year, what to give. I'm just asking you because nobody knows what you give. We're not going to check on you about your giving. But just the integrity of allowing the great I am to move in there and interact with you on finances, giving him that privilege, taking that time, discussing it with your spouse. And people raise their hand. I said, now, now I mean it. Raise your hand. And if you want to do that, commit to do that this week. Did you do it? Or was it religion that you just kind of left at the door? Ah, it's a great service. You know, they make those kind of things at church. And, but what has transpired since then in the everyday of life is nothing. And I want you to know, that's not my problem. That's your problem. Because it sets in motion a, a very unhealthy pattern of life in which God really doesn't mean much in the real everyday of life. On the other hand, for you to take that time and impose that moment on your life sets in motion the very path to godliness, which in the end is not about money, but it's about enriching your life in every area. That's what we're talking about. A godly culture and godly lives always begins. It's the pattern of every good life I see in this body. It always begins because the people begin with every issue in life with, what does God say? And they want to hear. They really want to hear or read. But if there's no thought, you take God's name in vain. Secondly, by allowing God to impact our desires. You know, we are a feeling-oriented culture. It's almost like we've been taught that the first commandment is if we feel it, do it. And I'm all for feelings, and I want us to feel good. I really do. But I also want you to know every feeling isn't legitimate. Feelings are amoral. But they can drive you to immorality. And the point is, is that God's intention is to say, give me the privilege of shaping and boundering and directing your feelings. And I'll do that. And let me tell you, those feelings will be enjoyable for a lifetime if you'll let me. They won't turn and bite you. Then thirdly, by allowing God to impact our desperateness. And I say that because there's some of us here this morning and we're desperate. We've entered a desperate place. It might be that we have a death in the family or we're suffering an illness or a divorce 
uh, or a broken relationship with somebody we've really enjoyed and we can't understand why they've broken off the relationship with us, or we've got a financial disaster. I want you to know, from time to time, every one of us will walk into the place called desperateness. And when we do, I hope you will allow God's name to become valuable to you and that the I am will be there for you. You know, if you look at our culture, you see our culture is a little bit desperate today. I mean, our president says we're in a funk. Sociologists say we're in culture wars. But you and I know day to day as we drive around our community that there's a lot of despair out there and violence and a coarsening of our culture in the everyday affairs of our cultural life, a declining quality of life and fractured families everywhere. We feel that. And we go, what are we going to do? I want you to turn back to Genesis 4 because that's the first culture and they were in a death spiral, but they did something about it. But I want you to notice what they did because it's summed up in one phrase. When you get to Genesis 4, what you're going to find is the story of Cain and Abel, uh, the beginning of a new culture. And of course, Cain killed Abel and bloodshed broke out all over. And then as you follow along this chapter, you find another man along the way in this Genesis passage and his name is Lamech. And he confesses to his wives that he killed a man and he even killed a young boy. So this is a culture spiraling downward. But then Adam and Eve give birth to Seth and, and there's others who are born. And then as you come to the very end of the chapter, you see where they turn their culture around. I want you to notice the phrase. It's in verse 26. It says, Then men, in the midst of all this spiral, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. <laughs> I said, we've had enough. We're out of control. God, help us. God, we need strength. We need courage. We need morality. We need good marriages. And he, saw, and he sit, looks back and he says, I am. I am. Trust me. God has a name for himself. He knows that. Yahweh. The question really is, does God have a name through your life? Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we thank you for these powerful absolutes come from your word that teach us about life, that bring us to a place of uncomfortable submission on the front end but real life on the back end to which we can let go of being God and proclaim you God. Father, I pray that as we think about our own names, we ask the question, what will people think? How will they react when they hear my name? How will my children? How will my friends? I pray that we would see that how they answer that question is intimately tied up with how well they express your name in their everyday life. Thank you for this truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.